This is The Space Shot, episode 338 for April 17th, 2018. Long Duration Human Spaceflight, part one. I'm John Molnix. A quick note, the Space Symposium is going on in Colorado Springs right now, and yesterday Orbital ATK announced their new Omega rocket. It uses a solid rocket motor, much like the cancelled Ares 1 design for the first stage, and it looks pretty cool. Their logo is pretty slick as well. The A in Omega has a nice little red rocket flame, just like the Space Shot logo is sporting. I'm not sure if I've ever talked about this, but the logo for this podcast was inspired by one of the more familiar emblems you've probably seen before. The command section emblem from the original series USS Enterprise has the unique star pattern on the inside. If you look at that and then look at the logo for the podcast, I'm sure you'll probably see the similarity. Anyways, it's time for part one of the latest Cosmosphere podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 7, Long Duration Human Spaceflight. I'm your host, John Molnix, and I'm a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere. You can catch me on this podcast and also on my daily podcast, The Space Shot. We would love if you could leave a review for the Cosmosphere podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can help spread the word about the incredible work that's being done here at the museum simply by leaving a review for the podcast. This month's episode is coming out a bit later than usual, but I think you'll agree it was definitely worth the wait. I spoke with Chelsea Iwig, Megan Downs, and Doug Ebert about the effects of long-duration spaceflight on the human body. You'll hear about their background in just a moment. We had numerous technical issues to work through while recording this episode, but we were able to manage. I guess that's what we get for recording on Friday the 13th. Without any further delay, let's dive into that conversation. Today I'm talking with Megan Downs, Chelsea Iwig, and Doug Ebert. We're going to be discussing long-duration human spaceflight and the effects on the human body. Everybody, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So could you, uh, just all of you, just give me a little bit of background on yourselves. Uh, We we can start with you, Megan. Sure. I am an exercise physiologist, and I work in the um, Human Physiology Performance Protection and Operations Group. So I am the exercise discipline lead for that group, and I also do some work in EVA physiology looking at bioinformatics. And I have my PhD from the University of Houston. That sounds awesome. So for, you know, just we'll we'll talk about this later, maybe. But, you know, EVAs, there's a lot of things that have to be done in preparation for an EVA. It's not just as simple as throwing on a spacesuit like they do in the movies or TV shows. <laughs> no, it's definitely not that simple. And there's a lot of overhead and um, engineering that goes into getting out the door. That sounds really cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about that. Chelsea, what about you? Um, I am a. Uh, what's called a human factors engineer. So, um, what I'm, um, my job is concerned with making sure that anything within the vehicle that humans are 
flying in, anything that they need to touch or work with is um, safe and um, efficient and results in the highest level of performance. Um, so I, my current work is with Orion Human Engineering. So we're working on um, the next capsule that will take us to um, the moon and hopefully beyond to Mars. Um, my education is from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I got my bachelor's and master's from there in human uh, factors and systems. And I'm currently at Rice University working on my PhD in human-computer interaction and human factors. That sounds really cool. So in terms of how like the control panels are set up, is that something that you work on? Just making sure it's the most like efficient layout then or? Yeah. So displays and controls is a big aspect of our job, but really anything in that vehicle that the humans will interact with from the um, waste management system all the way up to the displays and controls, we, um, a big portion of our job is called human in the loop testing, um, which is the testing we do to make sure that the humans are able to interact with those systems successfully. Doug, how about you? Uh, let's hear a little bit about your background. All right. Well, I'm a uh, senior scientist here at KBR Wiley at uh, JSC and uh, been here for about 14 years now. Uh, started out in the uh, cell uh, cellular biology areas before we had a major reorganization to focus everything more on exploration back in the early 2000s. Uh, then I, I got into more uh, human uh, research using the crew and uh, ground subjects. Done a lot of ultrasound research over the years, uh, some uh, medical operations and monitoring. Done a lot of uh, research associated with our uh, one of our top uh, human spaceflight risks right now, the um, spaceflight-associated uh, neuroocular syndrome. Uh, we've done a lot of uh, training research, um, and I'm also currently working in commercial crew and Orion programs. The ocular, I know you mentioned that that was kind of one of the things I was wanting to ask about. So, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. So for everybody here, I mean, space flight has gone from just the short one orbit jaunt with Yuri Gagarin back. Oh, gosh, almost 60 years ago now, I guess, at this point. <laughs> um, how is our understanding of long duration space flight changed from Mercury to Gemini, Apollo, Skylab, you know, then shuttle and now station. How have things changed over the decades for our understanding of how humans live and work in space? Who wants it? <laughs> <laughs> I can start taking it and um, anyone that wants to jump in, go ahead. So back at the beginning eras of space flight, we really didn't know anything about what was going to happen to the human body for even short durations or long duration missions. So that was a huge risk. And as we've learned more and more, we know that there are acute adaptations and we know that there are long-term long -term adaptations. So every era of spaceflight and every mission that we go on, we learn more and more because we have medical tests and scientific research tests that are specifically designed to answer those questions and figure out how our body does adapt to microgravity, whether it's acutely or whether it's over time. And each one of the missions that we do, no matter how long it, what it is, it feeds into our bigger questions of exploration. So some of the questions we're trying to answer right now for exploration is what happens to your body when you're gone for two to three years and not exposed to earth type of gravity? And 
Right now we're using the ISS as a test bed to answer a lot of those questions and try to extrapolate what we know from six month missions or one year missions to two to three year missions. And then another kind of additional factor to that that makes it even more complicated is as we talk about um, going from zero G to a partial gravity environment like the Mar like Mars or the moon, and then back to zero G, we need to try to figure out how we account for that middle term ground there where we're exposed to partial gravity for a short amount of time after being exposed to long to microgravity. So all of those are questions that we're trying to answer now and um, using ISS as a test bed as much as we can to answer those questions. Just to, just to add to that, one of the other major contributors to our ability to look a little bit deeper into what's happening uh, during spaceflight, because we have gained a you know, much deeper understanding as time goes on, a lot of that is really the capability that we have um, within the programs themselves and the vehicles themselves, because very early on we had, you know, obviously Mercury, Gemini were just very small capsules held one or two people. Apollo held three. Uh, shuttle, you know, we worked our way up to seven and we had a much, much larger up mass. We had entire laboratories that were launched in the back of um, the shuttle that allowed, uh, you know, entire missions full of life sciences research to be carried out. Uh, now we have ISS where we have near um, complete real-time uh, communication with, uh, with the crew. We can remotely guide them through very complex experiments. We have um, very advanced technology. Uh, we're able to fly uh, equipment that is much larger than we used to be able to fly and much quicker than we used to be able to fly them. So all of, all of these advances are, um, you know, the infrastructure is actually helping us to answer the life sciences questions. I just wanted to throw in from the psychology and behavioral health standpoint, we've also learned a great deal about who are the right people to send up and how to compose highly functioning teams that will be able to um, uh, deal with the stressors that, of long duration space flight, including the isolation and confinement that the crew will experience during these long duration missions. So it's it sounds like there's just way more that goes into that than most people would ever realize. I mean, a lot of a lot of us, I think, just look at the physical changes that you undergo when you enter space. But there's so many more aspects to that that we just started figuring out. And it sounds like all of you are just working on fascinating stuff. So let's dive into that a little bit more for like the acute you were talking about acute versus long or was it acute versus long-term? Can you dive into a little bit more on that, what you mean by those terms? Sure, so immediately upon exposure to microgravity, um, you experience fluid shifts. Uh, there's just kind of space fatigue and dizziness, uh, and those affect your ability to perform right away. Um, they affect your blood pressure regulation, anything that requires you to really have a clear head and function. Um, <laughs> that's what affects you immediately upon exposure to microgravity. Um, from a more long-term adaptations, we see a variety of changes and uh, on a multi-system level. So we see changes in muscle strength and mass. We see changes in cardiovascular fitness. We see changes in cardiac function, so how your heart operates. Um, we see changes in bone mineral density. So all kinds of things like along that full spectrum. And uh, it's we do as much as we can to provide countermeasures for each one of those. But we're, like we said before, still learning every day on the best way to mitigate those microgravity-induced changes. 
tomorrow we continue with part two. I hope all of you have a fantastic rest of your day. I appreciate each and every one of you that listen to the podcast every day. I'd be incredibly grateful if you could share the podcast with your friends and family. Tag one of them and let them know about your favorite episode. I'd also really appreciate it if you could venture into the Apple Podcasts app or your podcast app of choice and leave a review for The Space Shot. A steady stream of reviews helps ensure The Space Shot is more visible in the Apple Podcasts app. As always, the show notes have more information on today's episode. You can hit me up on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at John Molnix. I'm always up to chat. You can also connect with me on Facebook. Just search The Space Shot or check out the links in the show notes and you'll find me. I'm John Molnix and I'll catch you on the flip side.